From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A leaked document suggests the Supreme Court is going to strike down Roe v. Wade. We look at what that might mean in Colorado. Could the state become a haven for women seeking abortions? We'll get clarity about state law from our public affairs editor. Then a special election in Glenwood Springs today spotlights the bigger debate about growth and affordable housing. Later, rethinking entrepreneurs to be new builders. We wanted to describe this next generation of of business owners, these women, these people of color, these uh, immigrants who are starting businesses. And a renaissance for historic preservation in Colorado, choosing what to save and why. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Of course, one of the biggest stories in the country today is the leaked document from the U.S. Supreme Court. It suggests a majority of justices are ready to completely overturn Roe v. Wade. To understand what that would mean in Colorado, I'm joined by CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee. Hi, Megan. Hey, Andrea. So let's start with that basic question. If the federal right to an abortion goes away, what happens here? Basically nothing, actually. Uh, Colorado law allows abortion and the procedure would stay completely legal here. Uh, What's interesting to note is that's actually been the status quo all along. There's nothing in Colorado law that says that if the federal right to an abortion goes away, uh, the state access to it does. But This year, Democratic lawmakers wanted to go further. They actually codified the right to an abortion uh, and to contraceptive care in state law. And is that because they saw this federal change possibly coming? Exactly. Uh, We actually, the the talks have been going on for a while, but they first started speaking publicly about the effort last December on the same day that the high court heard arguments in this Mississippi case that the the draft opinion comes from. Now, Colorado uh, has been quite liberal on abortion uh, sort of throughout the the time uh, of Roe. It's one of only a handful of states that has no uh, restriction on how late in a pregnancy a woman can get an abortion. And the state doesn't have waiting periods or, you know, uh, second opinions or anything like that. Uh, Backers said it was time to go further than sort of having a a explicit or an implicit right to abortion and do something to proactively support access. What does the state law say exactly? So it says that people have the right to access abortion and contraceptive contraception care uh, and that local governments in Colorado can't do anything to restrict those rights. That might be one part of the law that 
presumably might have an effect if Roe goes away. Uh, it also says that fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses have no legal standing under the law. That's kind of an outgrowth of the the personhood arguments that people who oppose abortion have been uh, been making. Um, if this uh, this is a state law, though, which means it was passed by a simple majority in the legislature, it was signed by the governor, and a future legislature, a future governor, they could completely overturn it. They could rewrite it. They could get rid of it. Uh, so abortion rights supporters say that they also intend to put a uh, constitutional amendment on the ballot in two years to try to really, really cement that uh, in Colorado law. There's one thing that's being talked about a lot. It's how overturning Roe could lead to this patchwork across the country. Some states would keep abortion legal and others would outlaw it. So what might happen in the states surrounding Colorado and, and what would that mean here? Well, there are groups that track abortion laws and they predict that nearly every state that surrounds Colorado would either immediately ban abortion or rapidly move to ban abortion. So Wyoming, Utah, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and then a little bit not exactly exactly bordering uh, Texas and Arizona. The only two states that aren't on that list are New Mexico and Kansas. Uh, and if that happens, providers expect to see a wave of women coming from those states with bans to get abortions in Colorado. That has already actually been happening, uh, especially when Texas uh, enacted its, I believe, six-week law women from Texas started coming to Colorado. Uh, Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains actually got a $20 million gift earlier this year, in part to support uh, their ability to, to provide abortions to women who aren't from Colorado. Okay. I know your reporters recently looked into the history of abortion in the state. Tell us a little bit about that history. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually, because Colorado has had milestones on both sides of the abortion debate. Uh, it was one of the first states before Roe to pass a law allowing abortion in some circumstances, very limited circumstances, but uh, that was seen as a pretty big milestone back then. Uh, and then since Roe, uh, much more recently, about 2008, Colorado was actually the first place to have a personhood measure on the ballot. Uh, there was this young uh, Christian law student in, in 2008. She decided to tackle abortion from uh, the other side, not ban the procedure, but say uh, a, a developing pregnancy has the rights of a person and, and can't be terminated. Uh, that measure was rejected at the ballot in 08. It's been rejected a number of times since, as have other measures trying to restrict access to abortion. Uh, but one thing that is interesting to note is the young woman who pushed that measure, who was kind of a political unknown back then, she's now the head of the state Republican Party, Christy Burton-Brown. Hmm. These past anti-abortion ballot measures have failed. Are there efforts to try again? Yeah, there is a group uh, that has been approved to collect signatures for this upcoming election on a measure uh, that would outlaw abortion at any stage in pregnancy. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with the two women who are listed as, as the organizers on it, so I'm not sure how much uh, they're kind of tied into the network they need to be in to, to get the signatures to, to get on the ballot. Um, but that is underway, and I think that effort will get a lot more attention uh, given the, the Supreme Court news. And like I said, there is an effort to put... Um, a pro-abortion rights measure on the ballot in two years. How could this impact the upcoming Senate race in Colorado? Well, I think we are going to hear abortion talked about a lot more than we would have uh, if there were not a landmark decision coming down. Uh, you know, Michael Bennett, who is the incumbent, he's a Democrat. He put out a statement uh, talking about how uh, the, the country, the Senate needs to move to protect abortion if it's overturned. The, Democrat, the Republicans in the primary, one of them has signed on to a bill to completely outlaw abortion. The other one has said, 
uh, I'm not really talking about social issues. Roe is settled. Uh, this isn't what voters care about. I don't think his name's Joe O'Day, and I don't think he'll be able to stay with that position much longer. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you, Andrea. CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee, we've been talking about the abortion laws in Colorado. That's in light of the document leaked from the U.S. Supreme Court. The actual court ruling isn't expected for another two months, so it's not clear what, if anything, might change between now and then. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Jackie Wallace was a football standout who played in Super Bowls until his life was derailed by addiction. Photojournalist Ted Jackson told Jackie's story, and when Jackie disappeared and needed help to recover, Ted refused to let his friends slip through the cracks. You don't tell the person who failed on their diet to give up. No, you say, we'll start again tomorrow. Hear their remarkable story on Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. With support from Lift the Label. People who live in Glenwood Springs vote in a special election today. They'll decide what should be done with a piece of land the owner wants to sell. At the heart of the issue is the bigger debate about growth and affordable housing. CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports. You can find the past and maybe the future of Glenwood Springs just behind the old mall. Oh, if we look out to it, you're seeing a big field with nice, natural green grass. Floyd Demos's parents bought this land back in 1960. They sold a piece of it for the mall back in the 80s, but the rest they've kept empty. Now he's 84, and he and his son are ready to sell. They've cut a deal with a developer who wants to build 300 new townhomes and apartments here. 20% of those would be affordable units, earmarked for local workers. Obviously, our valley needs more housing, and it is a dramatic problem. So from that standpoint, we think it's positive. A 2019 report estimated Glenwood Springs is short about 2,000 homes. Tight valley walls mean it's nearly out of space to build. So city leaders want new housing developments to go up, not out. Taller apartment buildings and townhomes, not single-family sprawl. And that's upsetting to people like Ardeen Arbany, who moved here more than 15 years ago. She can see the pasture from her backyard. Can you see over the fence? Yeah, it's nice. It's beautiful. And Arbany doesn't want to lose that view, which is one reason why she's opposed to this project. Are you familiar with the phrase, not in my backyard, or NIMBY? <laughs> I've heard of that, but that isn't how I feel. I am nervous about it, though. It is almost literally in your backyard. Well, that's true. That is true. <laughs> so I guess, I guess that does sound like me, right? You can build them, but not in my backyard. <laughs> oh, shoot. Residents like Arbany complain about increased traffic and worry about evacuations during a potential wildfire. Opponents collected nearly a thousand signatures that ultimately led to a referendum that could stop this development. Glenwood Mayor Jonathan Godas says that will only continue to make the city less affordable. I don't think that anybody feels that 
they are making decisions that are making the community less diverse, less livable, less working class. But that's exactly what's happening. But people will wake up in 10 years and go, why can't I afford to live here? Why can't my children afford to live here? The median home price here is now nearly $800,000, up about $300,000 in just five years. One reason? Glenwood's housing stock has only grown slightly since 2010. But some longtime locals told me it feels like Glenwood is growing too quickly. Several big apartment buildings have opened in the last few years. And traffic especially is getting worse. Partially because now, like Aspen, it's become so expensive that service workers in hotels and restaurants have to commute in from elsewhere. Marjorie Harris is considering that kind of commute. She moved to Glenwood just three years ago. She's 30, and she loves it here. But it's so expensive, she says she probably can't stay very long. What does that feel like? A bit drowning, suffocating. Um, like, it's so frustrating that, like, yes, I have a great, amazing job, but I wish I could put more money towards saving or actually be able to, like, eventually put down for a home. And I don't see that living here. Harris says she doesn't want to see Glenwood paved over completely either. She wants green space protected and any new development to be for the local workforce. But developers say they need market rate housing to subsidize the cost of building affordable units. So if Glenwood is going to add more affordable homes, it's likely going to have to keep growing. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Again, today's vote in Glenwood Springs will ultimately decide if a multi-unit housing development can be built on land the city annexed. We'll be taking a closer look at the high cost of housing, especially on the Front Range, in a special episode of Colorado Matters Thursday. We'll share the stories of people trying to buy homes in what can feel like an impossible market. I'm trying to focus on, you know, the long term. And if we don't get in somewhere now, what's the market going to look like a year from now, two years from now? Are we then going to be completely priced out to where we don't even have a chance? So that's kind of what's going through my mind and making it just a really tough and kind of scary process because it is, it is a huge risk. One real estate agent calls what's happening astronomically crazy. That's coming up Thursday in a special Colorado Matters. And we'll be right back. I'm Andrea Dukakis. You're with CPR News and KRCC. I worked through my anger, my rage about it. I don't feel that now. Pianist and composer Mary D. Watkins remembers when Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi, 1955. She was a kid in Pueblo, around Till's age. Watkins' new opera is a tribute to Till and to his mother. It was almost like I could send my blessing to his mother, Mamie Till, and to him. Hear the story at CPR.org. There's a misperception about who the country's entrepreneurs really are, and that misperception is hindering economic growth and opportunity. That's the finding of Seth Levine, co-author of the book The New Builders. Levine is a partner and co-founder at the Boulder-based venture capital firm Foundry Group. Makisha Booth is founder of Denver-based Sistabiz. It's a business accelerator for black female entrepreneurs. We spoke in December. Seth Makisha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. 
Seth, what would you say is the mainstream view of who the nation's entrepreneurs are? Now, I think one of the reasons we wrote the book uh, is exactly because of this question, that it turns out that the popular view of an entrepreneur is very different from the reality on the ground, right? I mean, people, if you read the mainstream press, you read the business press, you would think that the vast majority of people that are starting businesses today are white males starting businesses uh, that are tech businesses, likely in Silicon Valley or maybe somewhere on the East Coast, Boston or New York. It turns out that that's not even remotely true. The vast majority of people that are starting businesses today are women and people of color. Uh, and in fact, the fastest growing group of new entrepreneurs are black women. And you know these are trends that are backed up by facts. We cite in the book, we cite a number of studies, the American Express report on women-led businesses, as well as data from the uh, Small Business Administration and some other government sources that clearly show these trends in entrepreneurship. Very different than what you might get if you open up the business section of a newspaper or a, a national magazine and, and read about entrepreneurship. Of course, you can't discount those who have built these behemoths like Amazon and Apple. Absolutely not. And, and you know, I think importantly in the book, we don't argue big business is bad, small business is good. We argue for a balance. And, and really in the history of the United States, we've always kind of ebbed and flowed with this balance. But if you look at what's happening today in our economy, we've gotten uh, out of balance. And that's really problematic for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is that the vast majority, uh, and in some studies, more than 100% of all new jobs created in the U U.S. come from small business. So it's an important economic engine. It's a, a nearly 50% of employment. Um, it's about 40% of U.S. GDP comes from small businesses, but it's also the economic engine for employment in the U.S., and that's critically important as well. When you talk about entrepreneurs, what do you mean exactly, and why do you call them the new builders? One of the things that has been so pernicious in our view of entrepreneurship as a society is that we've narrowed what we mean when we say the word entrepreneur. It used to be, say, 100 years ago, entrepreneur was a broad term for really anyone who was running and, and starting a business. And that might be the, you know, the farrier or the corner merchant. And today we've really narrowed that. And, and in fact, in the book, we talk about the history of that narrowing, which was really a diplomatic tool. Ronald Reagan in the 80s uh, started describing entrepreneur as tech entrepreneur. And he used it as a diplomatic tool, really to contrast capitalism with communism. And he used it very effectively, but the byproduct of the way that he was using the term really uh, narrowed our thinking and the use of the word to just mean technology entrepreneur, usually starting a business that was intended to be a fast growth business, a high growth business. We think that that's problematic because it really narrows down the people that think of themselves as entrepreneurs and how we think about entrepreneurs. My co-author and I decided we would come up with a new term, not to reinvent entrepreneur, because we think that entrepreneurs should extend to all of the people that we call new builders. But we wanted to describe this next generation of, of business owner, these women, these people of color, these uh, immigrants who are starting businesses. And Makisha, let's bring you in here. You work with a lot of female entrepreneurs who are Black. From what you've seen out in the business world, have you witnessed what Seth describes on the ground? That is that today's entrepreneurs are more likely to be women and people of color. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually how Sister Biz got started, because I started getting a lot of calls from Black women who were exiting mainstream corporate America, government jobs, nine to fives, and they were wanting to branch out um, on their own and become entrepreneurs and small business owners. 
but there was no support system and, and no community and, and few resources that they could leverage to be successful. And Makisha, how did you yourself get started in the entrepreneurial world? Oh, goodness. Well, this latest round here, Sistibis, was I had the same story as the people I work with. And so I left a government agency job and was burned out and experienced workplace trauma and wanted to work for myself and build my own legacy. But my work in small business goes back to when I was... 19, and I worked for the U.S. Small Business Administration. I ran a small day spa in Cherry Creek, um, north in Colorado for some time, and then in the Golden Triangle. And I've been a small business owner and an entrepreneur at heart for the past 25 years. What's your sense of why so many Black women are starting businesses? You mentioned burnout from other jobs. Um, yeah, so there's a few reasons why I think Black women are starting, are the fastest growing group of women in business. And there's some research around this in um, a couple of reports where Black women have been interviewed and reported that they're exiting corporate America, mainstream institutions, and in record numbers due to everything from workplace trauma, racial trauma, and equitable pay and treatment. And so entrepreneurship is a way for them to make ends meet and for them to escape that experience. And entrepreneurship is where they're running to. But when they get here, they need support, they need resources, they need community. You've mentioned workplace trauma a few times, and I just want you to describe what you mean more specifically. Yeah. So, I mean, for Black women, often it means experiencing inequitable pay and treatment, experiencing microaggressions, microassaults, microinsults on a daily basis, and not having access to the same opportunities in the workplace as their white counterparts. And Seth, one of the entrepreneurs you profile is a woman who started a cake shop in Lawrence, Massachusetts. What's her story? Yes, this is the story of Denaris Mazzara. And in the book, we tell the stories of a number of different new builders and put them in a larger context. And Denaris's story, which is really kind of the highlighted story throughout the book, is really incredible. It just shows the perseverance and tenacity of new builders. Denaris is an immigrant. She's from uh, the Dominican Republic. She was working at a Samsung factory in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a, a town uh, maybe 30 minutes outside of Boston. And she was was struggling. And her, her mother brought over uh, $37 in food stamps to help her out. She had a child and she was needing to put food on the table. And Denaris, who believes in God, had a, sort of a vision. Uh, she was sitting on her sofa, sort of ready to go to work. And, and she was essentially had this vision of, I should go and, and make flan, which was funny in, in particular because she didn't know how to make flan. But she decided that's what she would spend the, the $37 on. So she went and bought uh, the ingredients to make flan with these food stamps and made flan. The first batch actually was ruined. <laughs> and she was wondering, why was I told to do this? Uh, but the second batch came out well, and she took it to the break room at Samsung and sold them off the break table for $5 a piece. She did this repeatedly, and after a month, had turned $37 into $500 and realized that maybe there was something more here. It's a longer story, and I won't recount the whole thing, but through a series of fortunate circumstances, she ended up uh, becoming connected to a group called Entrepreneurship for All that was started in Boston. They actually, we, we operate here in Colorado as well, out of Longmont. But uh, that group helped her operationalize her business, buy a building, open up a, a Main Street bakery. And she now employs uh, over a dozen women in Lawrence and has a very successful small business. 
The foreword of the book is by Tyra Banks. She's a model and actress. Uh, She's also a female business owner and a person of color. Talk about her business and her struggles getting started. Tyra wrote this foreword really about her own experiences as a Black woman, a Black businesswoman. And even with her fame and with resources, she struggled in ways that she felt like her white counterparts did not. And so she wrote a a forward about that experience, and it's incredibly powerful. She describes, you know, holding on to fierce, what she calls fierce power, and it really comes through in her writing. And I believe the business she started was an ice cream business. Is that right? So Tyra started a number of different businesses, but the one she's working on right now is called Smize Cream, which is an ice cream business. Makisha, does Banks' experience fit in with the unique challenges you see for Black women starting businesses? Yeah, I would say so. I would say that it's very common for us to have a shorter runway and to have less investors want to take a chance on us, to have less social capital in circles where we can access the resources for the money. And also when we are working on businesses in which our market is our own community to have investors that understand our models and our business concepts and our ideas less. And so it's harder to explain what you're trying to do because there's a level of cultural competence that often is needed to understand some of our concepts because we know how to serve our communities. Not all of us have markets that are specifically targeting the Black community or our own communities, but in the cases that we do, we experience like just that lack of understanding um, on the part of those who have the resources to help us build. And can you give me an example of perhaps one of the successful entrepreneurs that you've worked with and what propelled them to success? Sure. So um, one of my clients is a social media agency. But before she opened her agency, she was working in customer service, um, a low paying job. And she met with me to coach to see how she could leave her job where she wasn't happy and launch her social media agency. And when I shared with her and kind of walked her through where I felt her business could be and and how long it would take, she almost didn't believe me. And I kind of quoted her a number of like, I think 205K for her first year. And she was like, yeah, right. And so she was super scared. She went back to work. We have a big annual retreat that we do to help Black women build their strategic plans for the year. It's actually just wrapped up this weekend. Well, last year when it was happening, She told her boss that she wanted to take a few days off to go to the event. And her boss said no. And so she quit her job. And she came to the event and she's like, Makisha, I quit my job. I'm going to do what we said, what she said I could do. And I was like, whoa, whoa, everybody calm down. I didn't say quit your job yet. But she was serious. She was ready. And she really decided to take the leap. That was a year ago. She has exceeded the 205K that she made this year in her social media agency. But she's also just transformed as an entrepreneur and an individual and and a woman and and found more power and more fierceness and more confidence on her journey. And so she was here this year sharing with 50 other women how they can do it, too, because she did it last year. How has the pandemic affected the folks starting businesses that you've worked with? Yeah. So the pandemic has had mixed results. And the fact that it coincided with George Floyd's death. And it's just been a huge, huge um, couple years of change and, and trauma for our community. But we also have seen the nation impacted by this and, and kind of trying to figure out how to support 
the Black community and Black businesses more. And so those initiatives have helped our business owners. But we've seen a lot of our businesses close. So 40% of Black businesses were under threat of closure right at the beginning of of the pandemic. And we also know that we weren't able to access the relief and recovery funds at the same rate as some of our white counterparts and didn't have the paperwork, the back office support to access those funds. A lot of the eligibility criteria for grants that were being given out and for government funding, they really weren't very culturally responsive in taking into consideration the standing of Black businesses prior to the pandemic, because it was a pandemic for America, but we were already in a pandemic as a Black business community. A lot of what our white businesses started to experience during the pandemic, losing staff, not having employees, being under threat of closure, we were experiencing that already. So then we just went a little lower. And so the pandemic was really harsh on the community, but we did see a lot of efforts and a lot of advocacy to try to address that. And I want to ask both of you this in terms of raising capital. How do you improve the ability for some of these folks starting new businesses to raise capital? So it may surprise people, but the median amount of money raised by a Black female founder in 2018 was zero. We are not doing a good job of connecting capital with new builders. And it's one of the reasons that entrepreneurship in the United States broadly speaking, is actually struggling. If you look at the 40-year trend, and particularly the last 20 years, the number of net new businesses started in the United States has been falling and falling precipitously. Uh, At the same time, the average age of a business has been increasing. We're not creating new businesses at the rate that we used to create them, and we're not creating new businesses at the rate which we need to in order to sustain that economic engine, that new business growth, that new job growth that comes from these businesses. And we believe the real challenge here, the main challenge is that we're not doing a good job of connecting capital with people starting businesses. It may surprise listeners to hear that only about 1% of companies in the United States take money from venture capital. Only about 17% of businesses apply and receive uh, bank financing. So over 80% of companies, of businesses that are founded, have to do so with their own resources. So they're they're taking out home equity lines. They're asking friends and family for money. And first of all, we need to narrow that number, right? We need to find ways to creatively finance, whether that's bank financing or some of these new forms of financing that are are more kind of revenue-based. We call them revenue-based investing or profit-based investing. But we need to do a better job of of funding those businesses, of connecting sources of capital with people that are starting businesses, and with finding more and new creative ways for new builders to to fund their companies. We cannot rely on food stamps (laughs) and other small sources of capital to fund these businesses. And I think one of the things to consider is that, that when you give someone a small amount of money, you're forcing them to think small, right? When you give them access to a greater amount of capital. In the case of new builders, we might only be talking about tens of thousands of dollars, You know, not necessarily the multi-millions of dollars that businesses that are creating technology companies that are intending to scale and you know spend massively on marketing, although some of these businesses started by new builders do look like that. But we need f- to find new and creative ways to get new builders that kind of financing. And Makisha, how would you say you improve the ability of people starting new businesses to get capital? So we, a lot of our work is about helping them to prepare 
to access capital through loan readiness, helping them with their business pitches and plans. Um, at the start of our retreat, everybody came in and got a check, a play check for a million or 10 million or more dollars. And they started the weekend by thinking about what would it look like to scale my idea and my business and have a business that is running and I'm not in it on a day-to-day basis. Because right now, over 95% of our entrepreneurs are solopreneurs. And so we help them envision a business that, a growth plan for their business um, and help them to get their back office support in order and all the things they need to be scale ready and loan ready. And how do you view investing in these small businesses when it comes to risk compared to, say, the risk of investing in a larger business? Well, I think one of the things that people don't understand is what the risk profile of some of these small businesses look like. Now, it's true that it's hard to get a small business, really any business, off the ground. And so there's a certain amount of risk involved in these investments. But that said, I think that there's maybe less risk than people realize. And I hope perhaps that the view of this is changing. Certainly, there are platforms now that are available for people who invest in Main Street businesses, right? They look like crowdfunding. Sometimes there's equity funding involved. And more and more people are making uh, maybe even small investments, $100, $500 at a time, into these uh, small Main Street businesses. But I guess I would kind of turn the question back. I mean, there's a massive risk to us as an economy to not invest in these businesses. And so whether that investment comes from fixing some of the challenges in the banking system, whether that comes from individuals deciding to invest, whether that comes from government grants or other forms of public financing, we can't afford to not invest in these businesses. It's too critical to the future of our economy. And you've said the definition of entrepreneurship has been overtaken by Silicon Valley in a way that's really dangerous. You say our obsession with size and scale has been toxic. How do you see it affecting sort of the future of small business and economic development? I think we need to take back the word entrepreneur. It was striking to me, given how often we use that term in my day job, right, and the types of businesses that I work with as a venture capitalist, it was striking to me that many new builders said to us very directly, oh, I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur. We often deride businesses that are Main Street businesses as lifestyle businesses. By doing so, we're taking away some of their power. We're suggesting somehow that they've made a trade-off that they should be thinking bigger, they should have this focus on growth. There's lots of businesses and there are lots of people that want to create a life around a passion of theirs that are very happy to run a single location business. And that really is the backbone of our community. And I think that that's something that we sort of miss in this conversation is how important these businesses are, whether they're on Main Street or or in an office park, to their local communities, just how much they gave back to their communities and how much they relied on their communities for support. I completely agree with what Seth is saying. And I think the hyper focus on the quote unquote unicorn is dangerous and it's irresponsible and it doesn't take into consideration the entire ecosystem of economic development in the country. For so many reasons, one being you have a bunch of big businesses and that's all we have left. And you know what they say, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Seth was saying so many of our businesses are small businesses. So you take the small 2% and hyper-focus all investments in that space, then what are we doing with the 98%? It's just an irresponsible approach to the economic ecosystem. And so I absolutely agree that 
that hyper-focus needs to change. We need to find more balance and we need to find ways to bring together the new builders so that the new builders can create a co-op system where we're able to compete with larger business. In many ways, this is an assessment of the new builders and some of the successes they've had. But in other ways, it's a sober assessment of the ability of people of color to start businesses. And Makisha, I wonder if you have hope for the next decade and what's going to happen and what changes are going to come. I absolutely have hope. I have hope because I work with new builders every day and they inspire me. And with books like The New Builder coming out, where we're starting to recognize the importance of valuing every kind of entrepreneur and and the diversity of the types of businesses that exist in our country. And I also think that, you know, um, there's going to come a time where we have to recognize that and the ecosystem is going to evolve in a way that it's just not possible to continue on with the way that we're going. And and I think that... um, that's why at least SistaBiz and all the other accelerators out there that are like SistaBiz are doing the work we do so that we can help our, our new builders find their voice and take their place in the economy. Makisha Booth, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Seth Levine, thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Makisha Booth founded Denver-based SistaBiz. It's a business accelerator for Black female entrepreneurs. Seth Levine co-wrote the book, The New Builders, with business journalist Elizabeth McBride. He's co-founder of the Boulder-based venture capital firm Foundry Group. We spoke in December. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. With a job opening now to join the Denverite team, reporting for the curious and concerned about everything making the Mile High City tick. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org slash careers. Historic preservation is changing, choosing what to save and why. Colorado's Most Endangered Places list is marking its 25th anniversary this year. It's highlighting sites that reflect the heritage of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as rural life. Kim Grant directs the effort. He spoke with Ryan Warner in February. First off, talk just a little bit about this kind of reckoning going on in historic preservation uh, how do you how do you feel it and see it in your own circles? Well, I think it's part of a larger national conversation going on around the issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and um, the preservation community has been more and more attentive to that. And while we have worked with a number of sites um, reflecting, you know, more diverse heritage and history over the years. You know, we realize that it it's time to really make a push for this because there's many great stories, and we need to let folks tell their own story, too. So behind all these great sites that we're trying to work with to save, there are many wonderful stories, and they're very powerful when they're told in the voices of the people who, you know, who most uh, relate to them. The Endangered Places Program has listed 130 historic sites in Colorado in the past quarter century, 54 
have been declared saved. That's about 42 percent. Mm-hmm. Is, is, that, is that a good track record? Yes, it is a good track record because none of these sites are easy when we get involved with them. Um, by definition, they're threatened or endangered, in some cases, pretty dilapidated condition. And so it's, it's a bit of a long-term endeavor for certain sites. Um, very rarely are they turned around very quickly, and it, it takes some partnerships in the community, and it takes resources, and it often uh, takes some time to do that. So that's one of the things that we've learned over the last 25 years, is that you have to kind of take a long-term perspective on this. All right. In, in these 25 years, name a site or two that has been spared. And uh, maybe that's like picking a favorite child. <laughs> well, there's a lot of them on the list. Um, one of mine that has particular resonance for me is, is one we announced this year, which I know uh, we've talked about before, which is Denver Tramway Streetcar number 0.04. And that was an eight or 10 year labor of love. And it truly was in a ruinous state. And it was the very last streetcar to run on the Denver uh, tramway system in revenue service uh, right before they shut down the system in, in 1950. And it, it's not one that you uh, sort of restore in a pristine way, because one of the interesting things about this streetcar is that it also went to Leiden, where the coal mines were that powered the tramway system. And so coal miners would ride it to work and, and back home. And, you know, it was a pretty um, utilitarian kind of streetcar and not quite as beautifully restored as, as a similar streetcar is in Lakewood. Uh, where had it been and where is it now? It was on a storage lot for nearly 20 years. And then we moved it up to a really interesting site outside of Cheyenne that was an old missile site. Not the silos that go down into the ground, but a shed is part of a complex of three of them where the old Atlas missiles um, were stationed. Hmm. And uh, Michael Pinnell, the contractor, rents space there and works on uh, railroad cars there. And it's there right now awaiting its final um, transport back to Arvada to be displayed in Old Town. In Old Town, Arvada, okay, which Mm -hmm. has recently been reconnected to the metro with its own train. Yeah. Um, Another site that we're working on, making some progress on, is the adobe potato barn at the Garcia Ranch in in the San Luis Valley. And we've got some grant funding in place to work on that, and we're real excited about that. And so this is what, a barn that would have stored picked potatoes? Yes. Yes. And it's climate controlled because it was adobe with a double walled structure that created an air pocket that added to the insulation, created perfect conditions for storing potatoes. Ha! Without actual refrigeration. Yeah. Cool. Okay, let's talk about the sites, at least some of them, that you're highlighting on this year's Endangered Mm -hmm. Places list. One of them we've talked about before on Colorado Matters, that's Deerfield in Weld County, spelled D-E-A-R because the land was so dear to those who owned it. A farming community on the plains in the early 1900s that really embodied the dreams of the black folks who homesteaded there. People were very hopeful, and they really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. That's Terry Nelson from Denver's Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in the documentary Remnants of a Dream. 
there's now an effort in Congress led by Colorado representatives Jonah Goose and Ken Buck. They've co-sponsored a bill to add Deerfield to the national park system. Uh, what stands out to you about the story of Deerfield? Deerfield may be um, certainly the most important site of its type in Colorado and one of the most important west of the Mississippi. Um, there's really only three buildings left at Deerfield, but it really embodied the notion that if Black people were able to own land and, and build homes, they would gain independence and be able to pass assets on to their heirs and, and uh, be successful. And unfortunately, things like the Dust Bowl intervened and caused the place to slowly vanish over time. But through the efforts of uh, the Black America West Museum and a couple of professors at the University of Northern Colorado and the Deerfield Dream Project, they have made um, significant progress recently and just got a $498,000 National Park Service grant from the African American Civil Rights Program. And that will help them with the restoration of the filling station. And it's a huge, huge leap forward. The filling station. So there was a gas station there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition to many other businesses, I believe. Yeah, there were churches. There was a lunchroom, a blacksmith shop, several homes and several farms kind of in and around the periphery. And this was a site that that was really threatened a few years ago by uh, a developer who wanted to build modular homes, including in some areas in the National Register District. But there was a land swap that was engineered to protect the core area of Deerfield from that development. And that was another important milestone. Which shows you that sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, or one step back and three steps forward. Um, Yes. Another place you've declared endangered is the Iglesia de San Antonio, Tiffany Catholic Church in southern La Plata County, so southwestern Colorado. Tell us about this church's significance. This church represents the uh, early Hispano settlement of the uh, riverine valleys in the area along the old Denver and Rio Grande uh, railroad line that heads to Durango. And it was built lovingly by the local people using local materials, adobe and stucco, And it's a charming little building in the town of Tiffany, but there's really little of anything left in the town. However, there's an annual mass that's held there each year, and the local caretakers got it listed on the endangered places a couple of years ago, and we successfully uh, acquired a grant to do a structural and engineering assessment and create a preservation plan for it. So we now have a pretty good idea on a path forward to do this uh, restoration project in uh, stages. Uh, it's a beautiful little building. It's in very rough shape on the outside, but the inside's in, in pretty good condition. And uh, it's, it's just a wonderful little uh, building that we hope in, in a year or two to have fully uh, restored. Oh, I'm, I'm so delighted to have learned about Tiffany, Colorado. I guess I'm a little embarrassed I didn't know about it. But but going to Mass there, um, it must be a, quite an intimate experience. It is, and there's a huge turnout every year. Um, the building's actually owned by the Archdiocese of Pueblo, and when the congregation uh, closed officially, uh, the folks that went there went to the nearby Catholic Church in Ignacio, and um, all, both of those entities are interested in supporting this project as we move forward. 
Yeah, I imagine that buy-in is really important with these projects. Not all your endangered places are positive history. Boarding schools used to assimilate indigenous children have made headlines in the past year after a mass grave was found at a school in Canada. Uh, That prompted U.S. officials to look at the legacy of these types of schools in this country. So talk about the Southern Ute Boarding School campus in Ignacio. You've mentioned Ignacio already. Why is that boarding school at risk? It is one of the most intact boarding school campuses in the United States, and it's really the only one that is intact in that way in Colorado. And the Southern Ute tribe has surveyed tribal membership to determine what to do with the buildings. There's really three primary buildings and then uh, a veterans memorial on this campus. Hmm. And inside them, there are also some spectacular WPA-era murals done by tribal member Sam Ray in about 1936 or so. So there's uh, a real awareness on the part of the tribe that it's a real important resource, and it's also an opportunity to tell their story about this really difficult period in American history. And it was a period characterized really by a a genocidal campaign to forcibly assimilate uh, Native Americans, indigenous people into European American culture, and really with disastrous results that, that the tribe is still dealing with today. Yeah, there's something almost twisted about the thought that there are murals by an indigenous person in a school meant to subjugate them. That, that is a lot to unpack. Well, one of the key things that happened, though, was at a certain point in history, uh, the federal government began to realize that this effort wasn't working. And um, they slowly switched gears a little bit and, and began to uh, allow the students and, and the tribe to reclaim some of this history. And the repainting of those murals was, was part of that effort. Oh, um, fascinating. Uh, and indeed, this is a living example of how the structures can help continue to tell a story and, and really become lessons for future generations. Uh, two two other locations of note on this year's endangered places list in Colorado. A grocery store in Grand Junction is at the center of a thriving Italian-American community there. Uh, it has a new owner who plans to preserve the work of Italian stonemasons from 1909. Mm-hmm. The Union Pacific Pump House on the other side of the state in Kit Carson from the late 1870s. Uh, this is the last one of its kind in Colorado. Is it, I don't know, like a real soul-searching to come up with the list and all of the things you might not be able to put on it in any given year? Yes, it's it's definitely a challenge. I mean, we've had over 600 sites nominated in 25 years, and only 130 made the list. But this year, because it was our 25th anniversary, we thought that was a good time to kind of take stock and calibrate and... Um, maybe focus on these five that we just talked about that have been on the list for a while and try to um, keep the momentum going or jumpstart them in some cases. Kim, thank you so much for being with us. 
Sure. Thank you. Always great to talk with you. Kim Grant directs Colorado's Most Endangered Places list. It's a project of Colorado Preservation, Inc. He spoke with Ryan Warner in February. You can now submit nominations for next year's list through August 22nd. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thank you.